Did you grow up in the 70s, 80s, or early 90s? Then you might want to tune into Gen X Grown Up, the podcast by Gen Xers who refuse to outgrow the things they grew up loving. Join the Gen X Grown Ups each week to talk media, tech, toys, and games from yesterday and today through the eyes of Generation Xers. You can also enjoy their backtrack episodes, where they choose a single topic like the Walkman and dig in deep to discuss why they remember them so fondly. To find their podcast and YouTube channel, go to genxgrownup.com. Imagine that everything you see in the present moment is only what you imagine or manufacture in your mind. A compilation of past recollection and anticipated future. You call this thing now, but is it really? It's so obvious. Now is now. End of story. But there's so much more to it. And we begin exploring it now. This is your host, Craig James, and you're listening to Big Audacious Idea, the show that invites you to think big. From ancient philosophy to modern science, we'll explore the questions that will shape civilization for years to come. Today, I'm joined by Alan Burdick, staff writer with The New Yorker. He's been editor of The New Yorker's science and tech blog called Elements, and he's written for magazines such as Harper's and GQ. He's also author of the mind-expanding book, Why Time Flies, a mostly scientific investigation. In this episode, Alan and I are exploring time, what it is and what it isn't, our perceptions of it. We'll delve into the neuroscience of time perception and the technical explorations, if not explanations, into the mystery of time. And as much as we will answer some questions, we will ask many others, such as how much time is contained in the moment we call now, and how much of it can we perceive at any one time? How do we know if time moves forwards or backwards? Do we even know if it exists at all? My curiosity about time started when I was a kid. I'd be in the back of the station wagon as my parents drove us home from visiting with my cousins. It was usually dark. I would gaze out the window and watch the moon move across the sky, or so it appeared. I found this fascinating, that the moon was moving rapidly across the sky just like I was. But it wasn't. I soon learned that I was perceiving the car's movement relative to the moon, not the moon's movement. It taught me that many things I perceived may not be real at all and that as much as I trusted what I saw to be real, at the same time, I didn't. On another one of these car rides, I experienced another misperception. On one of these journeys home, the car slowed as my dad began to brake for a red light. This time, I felt something interesting, didn't see it. I felt us slowing down, and then slowing down some more, and then we were stopped. But only sort of. Something curious happened. As, as quick as we stopped, we were easing back just a little, what felt like a singular moment in time was the car both slowing in forward motion and instantly or so it seemed creeping backward a bit in unison. Now, I knew that couldn't be true. We couldn't be moving forward and backward at the same time. There had to be a full stop. When did that stop occur? Were we motionless before we started drifting backward? How long did that stop last? When did it start? How small is that space when stop stops and reverse begins? And at what precise moment in time was that an actual now moment when that stop happened? Jeez, did it even exist at all? 
Fast forward a few decades, and here we are talking with Alan Burdick. Alan, are you there? Hello. We're so looking forward to this conversation uh, with you, and I've been fascinated by this topic, and you've been the inspiration to dive into it further. So thank you for that. Thank you so much. Really a pleasure. All right, let's dive right in, mindful of our time box. So Alan, if you'd share a little bit with us about how you got into this time business. Yeah, you know, my, my last book was about um, ecology and, and evolution, and it really got me thinking about these long-term timescales, you know, millions of years, which as a human with a, you know, 100-year lifespan, hopefully, it's just really hard to wrap around, you know, wrap your mind around a scale that big. And, and so it just got me thinking, well, what, like, what is time and how do I perceive time? And, and, you know, are there other ways to perceive time? And also I was just terrible at managing my time. So I, I kind of thought that if I could write a book that answered all my questions about time, I would somehow get better at um, dealing with it. How did you do? Did you answer all your questions? <laughs> I did answer all my questions, but it took ten years. So uh, I don't, I don't know that. Um, I was going to say I, I didn't learn anything about managing my time, but but I, I do feel like I, um, I feel like I got something pretty profound out of it. Well, it's it's a fascinating topic, and you breathe such life into it with story. So thank you for sharing yours. And one of the things that fascinates me is the very definition of it. You know, what is what is this thing? And in language. I find it so interesting you speak to the notion of time is a verb, not a noun. We use time to define our experiences and events, but we don't really, time isn't really a thing. Help, help us get that. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, in, you know, in physics, this is, a, this is really kind of a longstanding question about what time is. But, you know, the, the questions on the, on the neuroscience side and the psychology side dodge the question a, a little bit by simply asking, well, how do we perceive time? Whatever time is, how do we perceive it? You know, the one thing we know is that time is not something like color or scent that we have, you know, senses to perceive. It's, it's, it's not like we have some kind of special radar that, that receives time. And the fact is that what we call time is is a whole array of different experiences from your sense of how long you know a stoplight lasts whether it's too long or not long enough to your sense of you know before and after and your sense of the order in which things go um your sense of you know it's now you know it's now right now and 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 how long that now is these are all kind of different flavors that when you add them up, add up to what we call time. And, and, and we, you know, we don't, we aren't born into all of them all at once. They, they come online, you know, really over the first 15 to 20 years of our lives. Fascinating. Is, what is now? How do we define it? How long is it? Is there a way to timestamp now? Well, scientists certainly tried in, in the 19th century. There was this very ambitious uh, series of experiments by uh, by German experimental psychologists to try to measure how long now is, and 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 it was really a proxy for trying to quantify consciousness. You know, the kind of moment of consciousness, and they did it all kinds of ways. I mean, you can ask, well, how long? 
does a you know a tone a sound last you can ask if i you know if i give you kind of two flashes of light closely you know, closely uh, arranged in time how close can they be before you perceive them as only one flash of light rather than two and and using an array of of approaches they came up with a length of now that was anything from like you know a 20th of a second to like seven or eight seconds long and then like william james came along and said this is really this is really kind of tedious and getting us nowhere let's just acknowledge that now is actually a moment of awareness in which like it's long enough to you know to see a sparrow fly across the yard or see a shooting star there's a beginning to this now and there's an end to this now and a whole you know small array of little experiences may bubble up in it but that's kind of as much as we can say about how long it is it's it's a moment of i mean he essentially defined now as a moment of consciousness as a moment of awareness and he kind of left it at that interesting and i've heard it said many a times that that idea of consciousness is a compilation of past present and future and therefore in many ways our now isn't really now it's a mashup of memories past anticipations of the future as well as the now now yeah you know Jameson imagined himself uh, lying awake in the middle of the night, and he probably was not imagining it either because he was an insomniac. But, you know, this experience that we have in the middle of the night when you're just aware of time right now, you know, now, these kind of moments of now bubbling up. And he said, even, you know, even a now in which nothing is happening, there's always a little bit of something happening, even if it's just your thoughts you know, even if it's your awareness of the fact that you are having thoughts, right? It's this like meta-awareness, which in a way is sort of what separates us maybe from animals. Like animals also experience time and, and they have to navigate time and they probably, they move around now, in a now. Um, but the question is, are they aware of themselves in the moment? You know what I mean? Are they are they self-aware? And Probably not. We think not. Um, we certainly are, and and that for us is what now is. That's what consciousness is. So here's an interesting thing that I think you mentioned in your book as well. That if indeed now is a meta of this idea of consciousness and awareness and a mashup of past, present, and future, there's also this elusive counter concept where the now we perceive isn't really now because it's already the past because it takes time to process this stuff. And I think you spoke to how different things arrive in our brains at different times that we assemble into now. And therefore, one could argue it's not really real. It's an illusion. It's in our mind. Well, yes and no. I mean, almost by definition, it's in our mind. Until St. Augustine came along in the fourth century, discussions of time were, were strictly uh, in terms of physics and, you know, how long is a, is a moment and is there, you know, are moments divisible? Can you divide them up into smaller ones? And if you can, what's in between those moments, you know, and how long are those? And people just tied themselves into, into knots. And then Augustine came along and said, well, look, all we can say really about time is that we are aware of ourselves 
in the present. And we have, a, you know, we have memories and we have expectations of what's going to happen in the future. And, and time is in the mind, right? I mean, it doesn't make it doesn't make it an illusion necessarily and it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist i mean take for example like mathematics or language right a language doesn't exist real i mean you can write it down i suppose but you know language or math don't really exist in the world they they exist in our minds we we kind of created them right but they are essential to are being able to navigate and understand the world. And I would put time in that category. It doesn't have physical substance, but it is a very real tool that, that we need to survive. We were talking about the perception of time and our perception of order of time. Well, then there's the the technology, the measurement of it, the capture of it, and organizing of time in order for society to function. Not too, too long ago in human history, we had different ways to calculate it, and different places around the globe recorded it at different paces. There weren't even time zones. Can you imagine? So what started to happen is the necessity for us to be able to agree. And the greatest example of this was the fact that what started to happen without agreement on time across the globe, trains would literally crash into each other because 9.15 for you wasn't 9.15 for me. I remember you referencing that time doesn't really exist per se in measurable terms until it's compared against other clocks. And then humans, in order to operate in this thing we call time, need to sort of all agree. I think that's very interesting, the empirical absolutism around time, yet its variability and relativity at the same time. Yeah, I mean, you know, once you, once you start talking about what, what clocks do, it gets really weird. You, you'd think that, that there's nothing clearer than what a clock says. Um, and, and in many ways, it, it is our most fundamental definition of what time is. You know, you ask Einstein, what is time? And he says, time is whatever a clock says it is, <laughs> says it is, <laughs> you know, and he was very much an instrumentalist, you know, that, that does it, does it really exist beyond the tools we use to measure it? Well, let's talk about that for a second, if we could. There's these couple concepts uh, you speak to in your book, Why Time Flies, that there's this notion of sort of an historic top down measurement, planetary things moving around and doing math and subdividing into minutes and seconds, or the bottom-up atomically. And that leads to a fascinating story that you told about when you were investigating this thing, time and clocks, and you head off to Paris, and you learn about how we define the globe's official time. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so I, I was just interested in, in the basic question of, like, you know, if you, what time zone are you in right now? I'm Eastern. Okay, I'm Eastern too. So, so what time does your, um, does your clock or your phone say right now? Uh, four twenty-eight. Four twenty-eight. Wow, mine says four fourteen. I know. I'm just messing with you. <laughs> <laughs> now it says five fifteen. <laughs> four four fifteen here. Well, well, actually, you you raise an interesting 
thought. So your clock, suppose your clock says 428 and mine says 415. Like, how do we know who is right? Right. And what does right even mean? Well, you know, presumably, ideally, there's some clock further up the chain that is more accurate than either your clock or my clock that we can refer to that will settle this matter for us. You know what I mean? And there is such clock. There's actually a whole array of clocks, an ensemble, one ensemble in um, uh, in Colorado and another one in uh, in Washington. And these are our official timepieces, and and they kind of, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you want me to dive. Well, I guess I should. I guess I really should. So, the the way that these clocks work, it's not like they, you know, take the solar day and they divide it up into hours and into seconds and kind of figure out where we are in there. They have basically a fundamental definition of what a second is, and they have clocks that tick out very accurate seconds. They have a whole bunch of them and they create realized seconds at the same time and they compare them and they come up with kind of an average second. And then they take 86,400 of them to make a 24 hour day and, and they kind of track where they are over the course of that day. And, and anytime you ping them, you know, your phone or your watch is it's kind of pinging them all the time to get the right time, it, it gives you an answer you know, which of those 86,400 seconds you are in right now. And that's how you and I can be on the same time. But it gets more complicated because, you know, of course, France has a bunch of clocks that are super accurate. And so does Russia and so does England. And our clocks don't all agree. So we need some further clock, you know, some clock that's like further up the chain that's going to decide it all for us. And I went looking for that clock, which is in Paris. And I thought it would be a physical clock. But in fact, is what it is, is a group of scientists and they sit around and they take the input from all the clocks around the world, all the clocks around the world, the, the official, you know, laboratory clocks uh, of the major nations. They all tick out one second at exactly the same time. They send that data in to this group in Paris. They analyze it. They compare everybody's seconds and they say, you know, Craig, yours is a little fast. Could you slow down? And Alan, yours is a little slow. Would you speed up? And then they send that feedback back to us, you know, so we can adjust our clocks. And that process takes days. And so, yeah, it like takes days for us all to basically calibrate our, so our clocks onto the same second. And that information is fed back to us in the form of a newsletter. And that is the most accurate clock in the world. It doesn't tell you the time right now. It tells you how, how off time you were last month and what you need to do to be closer to on time next month. Isn't that something? I imagine some platinum diamond laced machine with blinking lights in a cold climate control room. You're saying it's a stack of paper, basically. Yeah. Well, this is, it's, a, it's an email that goes out once a month, but not very long ago, it was a literal stack of paper. This notion of the biological and cognitive aspect of time, not only our relationship with it, but our interaction and transaction with it, I found fascinating that it's different when you're young and that these three categories, I think you described the, uh, let me see if I can remember, there's the temporal order of time, perception of this, then that, then this, the idea of tense, past, present, and future, 
and the idea of duration. We accept that we just get that as adults. But I understand that when we're little, when we're kids, up to when we're four, a whole nother ball game, a whole nother relationship, or at least transaction with time. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of developmental psychology um, that's gone into trying to understand, especially language, you know, the acquisition of language. And, and, and time keys are all over, you know, past, present, future, these different tenses. And what's interesting is that, you know, by the age of three, most kids have mastered the use of the past and the present tense. Um, but they don't really understand the concepts of before and after. They don't have it. They don't have it nailed down uh, until until age four or so. So, like if you ask, you know, Janie in January, what's what's what comes next? Your birthday in July or Christmas? She will say Christmas, not because it comes next, but become because it's closest to her in time she you know she hasn't quite worked out the difference between you know proximity in time and order in time i you know another interesting thing that happens and and i really saw this in my own kids when when they were four or five years old is that you know until kids are that age they haven't totally worked out their memory processing is is not totally sorted out. So, you know, you could tell a really young child a, a story about how, you know, you went to the Empire State Building and describe all kinds of details of your trip. And then the next day, ask the kid to recount this for you. And likely as not, they will recount it as if they had gone there themselves. And that's because they haven't, they haven't worked out that your memories are not their memories. You know what I mean? All the all the memories that they encounter are presumed to be their own. And it's not until they're like four years old or so that, that they work that out. And at that point, you know, once you know that your memories are yours, you understand that they are essentially always yours and that that is who you are. You are your memories. And so that means that the person that you were last week is the same person that you are now. And the person you are now well, since you be the same person, you know, 20 or 30 years from now, your, you know, your, your development of a sense of self is really an understanding that yourself uh, and your memories persist across time. So this is interesting. There's this notion of this idea of time and clocks out there, but there's a number of clocks in us as well. Am I correct in that? The circadian clock and our cells all have clocks and they compare with each other and govern our life experience and our functioning. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, all, all the other kind of varieties of time that we've talked about up till now are, are, are really psychological processes and, you know, they're, they're socially acquired. They're learned, really. But you are, we are all born with, plants and animals have what are called circadian clocks. And these are timepieces, essentially in every single cell, that tick out through a not very complicated genetic mechanism, a period of time that is almost, but not quite, 24 hours long. And all of your cells have them. And, you know, it's what enables, you know, a group of cells that you call your kidney to work together and do what they need to do. And for your kidney and your liver 
and you know to work together to help you digest food over a 24-hour period so it's like you know you are better at digesting food at certain times a day than another um your metabolism is more efficient at other times a day uh than others your heart is more efficient you know in the late afternoon than it is in the morning and that's because there are underlying everything these circadian clocks in your cells but just like clocks everywhere they don't all agree and so you need we have a master clock in our brain that is kind of like the conductor of a symphony that keeps everybody in order and not only that but this conductor in your brain is constantly aware of daylight outside and it's keeping your internal clocks and all the clocks in your cells basically in tune with the 24-hour regime of sunlight outside. So it's very interesting. There's these internal and external clocks. There's a certain degree of relativism. I think when we're moving fast, time moves slower. There's inaccuracies. Clocks don't always agree. And one of the things I find fascinating is the question of not only do they agree, but does does time go in one direction? And when we start comparing macro versus atomic level math and science, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe there's even a question of time moving forward or back. Yeah, you know, that's that's kind of the point at which um, we we shift the conversation into, into physics. And I, I had so much to wrap my head around in the neuroscience and the psychology that I made an overt decision to not deal with physics really at all. So I can tell you, because I was actually recently on a panel with a bunch of physicists and astrophysicists, there's a very active conversation about, you know, why does time move in one direction? It, it really seems to, but there aren't really any definite answers. And not being a physicist myself, I could not clearly articulate them for you, I'm afraid. <laughs> so you don't have the answer to everything. I'm oh, so disappointed. I do not. Oh, man. No. We'll just have to end right now. No, th- there's so much to consider. Obviously, and it's fascinating. So let's let's lean back in the direction of time from a psychological, biological standpoint, and this idea of maybe if sometimes it doesn't agree, I, I might suggest at least in our minds sometimes it bends. So this is really interesting. I'm just reading um, from Alan's book here. Quote: This illusion of simultaneous is an even stranger one. By recalibrating your brain, you can make cause and effect seem to occur simultaneously. Perhaps it can be fooled into altering the temporal order still further to make the effect seem to come before the cause. So there's a fellow named Stenton and a couple other colleagues and Eagleman did this, uh, this flash test, a different one. And volunteers pressed a button to make a light flash But Eagleman inserted a delay of 200 milliseconds, about a fifth of a second, between the press and the flash. The subjects adapted to the delay almost immediately, and they didn't notice any lag. So it appeared as though the key press and the flash occurred simultaneously. Your brain performs a a causal uh, hand-in-hand, and this happens every day during daily life. When you type a letter on the keyboard, for instance, it's a delay. It doesn't show up right away, but you see it happening in real time. So once his subjects adjusted to this delay, i.e. pressing the key and then the delay of the flash, and it seemed like it was simultaneous, they then removed the flash. And the flash occurred exactly at the same moment the key was pressed. 
So here's what happened. The volunteers reported that when that happened, the flash occurred before they pressed the button. Their brains have recalibrated to set the delayed flash alongside the key press at time zero. But under redefinition, a flash that then occurred sooner than the expected delayed flash would be perceived as occurring before time zero and therefore seem to occur before the key press. Cause and effect, time, or at least the perception of order, seemed to be in reverse. Eagleman had since refined the experiment into a quicker format, and they explains it further. So he then, Allen describes, he went through the test. He said, I knew in advance that there would be a hundred second millisecond delay between my mouse click and the movement of the cursor, but I didn't notice it. And he goes through and he said, well, here's what's really unsettling, to say the least. The computer had somehow, it seemed, guessed my next move and made it for me. I ran through the test a few more times just to make sure that what I thought had happened really happened. Each time I did, I prepared to move the cursor. The color square moved on its own before to exactly where I intended to send it. I knew it would happen, but it happened anyway, again and again. The experience was so distant. The repositioning of the colored square was so obviously divorced from my own impending mouse click that as soon as I noticed the movement, I found myself trying to stop my finger from clicking the button, which of course was causally impossible because the square had already moved on, which meant I had already moved it, which meant I was trying to prevent something that I had already done. And because I couldn't help it, and because I'd already done it, I then end up pushing the button. Up until then, I had enjoyed Engelman's research, as one might enjoy a series of rides in a carnival. But this one, it was like I suddenly dropped through the crack into another dimension. So it's so cool that you experience the effect after the cause. I'm sorry, you experience the effect before the cause. And you're so convinced that you even try to stop the cause, but you can't because the effect already happened, which meant you did the cause. It's fascinating. Hard to explain, but really fascinating. And we're here to talk with Alan about it right now. Yeah. When, you know, when, when you were kind of talking about does time, you know, does time go backward? There is, there is a peculiar illusion um, in which, I, I don't know if it's best said as time going backward, but in which, in which effect seems to precede cause. So I, you know, I spent time with David Eagleman in his lab and he, and he showed me this really cool experiment that basically involved clicking around on a, on a computer screen. And, and what he had set up on the computer screen was like a, uh, like a tic-tac-toe box, you know, these like nine squares and a three by three grid. And one of them would light up and I would move my mouse to click the one that lights up. And as soon as I did, the uh, another one would light up. And so I would click over there and, you know, then another one would light up. So I'm, I'm kind of moving my mouse around, chasing these, these, uh, th th this lighted up box that moves every time I click it what's going on behind the scenes, he even told me, and I it still had that same effect, is that, you know, between the time that I click my mouse, right, and the time that the, uh, that, 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 that the color moves to a new square on the screen, like, I experience it as being instantaneous. But in fact, there can, he, he can build in a delay from anywhere from like a third to, uh, to a, like a tenth of a second, which is a pretty long time. But I don't notice that, you know, it, it, I, I experience, you know, click and then the thing moves and it's instantaneous. But, but really, there's a pretty long delay in there. 
And so what he's doing is I'm kind of clicking, clicking, clicking and moving around. He's built in this this tenth of a second delay and, and I've essentially calibrated it, my brain has, so that I don't even notice it anymore. And then all of a sudden he removes the ten the tenth of a second delay so that when I click, you know, my mouse, the color moves immediately. But I've become so accustomed to that tenth of a second delay that when it's removed, what happens is I experience the movement on screen as happening before my click occurs, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yes. I mean, it's like if it's like if you're typing on a screen, right? And uh, you know, you t- you type the letter T on your keypad, and then a tenth of a second later, you know, T shows up on your screen. If you do that again and again, you know, a few times, you just don't notice it. It just seems instantaneous. And if I remove suddenly, I remove that tenth of a second a T is going to appear on your screen right before, it feels like, right before you actually hit the T on your keyboard. And it's weird. It's like long enough for you to, it was sort of long enough for me to think, oh, I, I, want, to, I want to change that. I don't, I, don't want, I don't want that to happen. But it's already happening. It's re, it was super freaky. It's almost like it reads your mind. Knows yeah, what exactly. It does it before you even know you're doing it. Amazing, which begs the question, what we perceive, is it real? What other instances in our life experience might not be quite what we perceive? Hmm. Yeah. So looking forward, sort of back in the topic or the bucket of the technology and science of time and the measurement of it, I was fascinated by some of this atomic level stuff happening for the future. And that's these ultra, ultra, ultra small units of time we can now measure. And what I found particularly interesting is the application of this understanding at the atomic level. Share some of some of that with us, if you would. Yeah, so this was work that actually earned one of the scientists a Nobel Prize uh, 15 or 20 years ago. Basically, it involves lasers and, and these sort of uh, flashes of light that lasers can create. So if, if you imagine a laser shooting a beam of light and you turn this laser on for a full second, you know, so a beam of light comes out of this laser for a full second, the length of that uh, beam of light will be about long enough to go from here on Earth to the moon. That's how long, you know, that's how far a flash of light goes in one second, right? So creators of, of lasers have figured out how to make flashes of light that aren't just a second long. They're like, you know, a tenth, hundredth, thousandth, all the way down to um, what are called femtoseconds, which, and now I've, I've forgotten, but it's like a billionth of a second, you know, uh, a, a trillionth of a second. And so these are, these are like tiny, tiny, and I'm talking about length now, these are, are beams of light that are, are just like microscopic in length. And it turns out that that's a really handy tool for doing things like eye surgery, where you can focus this beam of light through the cornea and, you know, without like piercing the cornea, you can do surgery inside of substances without breaking the surface. It's, uh, it, it's like, you know, these, these beams of light are like little tiny hammers that you can use as chisels within objects. 
And, you know, scientists are working on making these things ever shorter. I think they've gotten down to add a second length beams of light, which are so brief uh, and so small that they use them to essentially photograph the movements of, of atoms within, uh, of like electrons within atoms. So how fascinating to think that measurements of tiny little fractions of time and light isn't just a fun thing to do, but a tool that can be it's applied. A, it's a tool. Yeah. And, you know, just like, you know, I started out saying about how my investigation kind of began with thinking about timescales of, of millions and millions of years. And, and it's kind of hard to wrap your mind around, you know, at the same time, there are these tiny, 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 tiny timescales in which, you know, it's hard to wrap your mind around what's going on down there, but they're still very useful to us. I wonder if we ever hit absolute zero time. Um, I hope not. <laughs> the end. <laughs> what a great crescendo, Alan Burdick. Speaking of time and being in the moment, I'm in this moment with you right now with great satisfaction to hear your insights and to chat with you today. You've got a minute left, so I close. My guest today has been Alan Burdick author of Why Time Flies, a mostly scientific investigation. Alan, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. Really a pleasure. Next week, we are going virtual. We will dip our toes into the wonderful worlds of virtual reality, augmented reality, and artificial intelligence. Our guest will be Aaron Frank, one of the first faculty members at Silicon Valley's prestigious Singularity University. Aaron and I will discuss programmable matter, 3D printing, and other things that make physical matter not matter as much. These are the tech trends that are changing our relationship with the physical world and beyond. Join us next week to explore how these technologies will shape our future. This is your host, Craig James, and you've been listening to Big Audacious Idea, the show that invites you to think big. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please leave us an iTunes review. It really helps. A special thank you to my co-executive producers, Joan Andrews and Michael DeLoya. Producer, Bridget Coyne. Editor, Julie Fink. Audio engineers, Eric Coltnow and Andrew Balserzak. Music director, David Allen Moss. Writers Bridget Coyne and Madeline Coyne. This program is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and Front Porch Media. Thanks for listening. And until next time, don't just be audacious, think audacious. Often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office 
in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern-day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found, and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.